New York, I booked a room at the Hotel Roosevelt, spread out my 18 shoes lovingly in a beautiful display in a small adjoining room, and went to the telephone. Disappointment awaited me. George Miller was out of town. He had been called away unexpectedly and would not return for two or three days. I was upset, and I said so. But the voice at the other end of the line replied, Wait for him, Mr. Ferragamo. Will be well worth your while. He is most anxious to see your samples. Don't show them to anyone else first. Otherwise, there is nothing doing. We'll make no exceptions. I was desperately anxious to get on my way towards California, and for a moment I wondered whether I should ignore Miller and take a chance with another firm. Then I remembered his promise of splendid displays throughout his stores and decided to wait. A good order from Miller would strengthen my hand in California. Impatiently, I cooled my heels for three days, hardly daring to go out into the city in case a buyer from another store should see me and demand to know what I was doing. On the third day, I telephoned again. Miller was back, but he said, My dear Salvatore, please wait until tomorrow. I've got so many people here, I don't know what to do. It's the time element that's against me. Tomorrow afternoon, even if it is late, my executives and I will come and see the shoes. I waited. Late the following afternoon, his secretary rang. It was impossible for Miller to come because he had a meeting which would last him most of the night. Please wait until the following day when he would be certain to arrive. I waited. Next day, he did not come, nor the next, nor the next. Each day, there was some reason why he was detained. It was not until the next morning of the eighth day that he and a flock of experts and executives turned up at the Hotel Roosevelt. I was delighted to see them, not merely because the days of waiting were over, and I could now experience the pleasure of seeing their delight and astonishment at my new shoes, but also because my money was running dangerously low. They wasted no time. The salutations were scarcely over before they were heading for the display room. On the way in, they asked a few eager questions, and then the whole group fell silent. I stood a little apart, watching as in turn they picked up the shoes and examined them. They looked at each other from time to time, but they did not say a word. The entire scene was played in a strange silence. I could see that they were so interested, so intense, that my mind whispered, My God, how they like them! Have I then made shoes so beautiful that they have even lost the power of expression? Miller examined the 18th shoe and then put it down. He turned and at last broke his silence. Are these all the samples you have, Salvatore? he asked. Yes, I replied, and told him some of my difficulties. However, I added, as you can see, every one is different. Each shoe can be made as a line and a series of lines. You can build up anything you want out of them. Well, Salvatore, he said, you're my friend, aren't you? Yes, George, I am, I said, surprised at the tone of his voice. Do you want me to tell you exactly what I think about your shoes and all these models? I'd love you to, I said eagerly. Don't hesitate. Tell me exactly what you think. Are you sure you want me to tell you exactly, he asked. Yes, yes, please do. Well, Salvatore, he said slowly, you have got nothing, nothing. Forget about all this. Take my advice and go back to Hollywood and do the work you have been doing so well. You've got nothing here, absolutely nothing. I do not know how I managed to smile and thank him for his opinion, nor how I shook hands with the members of the group one by one and escorted them to the door of my suite. I simply do not know how I did these things, 
I did not faint because I am not the type of man who faints, but I felt as if my heart stopped beating and that I should die. When the door was closed behind them, I found myself sitting in the display room, alone, looking at the 18 shoes now scattered untidily about the black velvet on which they had stood so neatly. I found myself saying over and over again, what have I done? Were they speaking to me about my shoes? What have I done that I have gotten nothing? As I sat in my misery and looked at those beautiful shoes, I heard them speaking to me. They said, don't be a fool, Sabatori. Forget that man's opinion. Look what you have done already. Get busy. Work, work, work. I tell you, it was a voice I could hear. The work I had done talked to me. The shoes wanted me to do something. I looked at them, one by one. I stood up and walked over to them and touched them. I said to myself, the shoes cannot be talking to me. Perhaps I am dreaming. Perhaps I have dreamed it all, all that has happened here in this room. Only I knew I was not asleep. It had all happened just as I heard it. But why? Why? I had never seen shoes like these before. No one had ever seen shoes like these. Why had my good friend Miller told me, you have got nothing, Salvatore, forget it. Why had none of these men spoken a word? Why should they have kept so silent? Why did they not caress the shoes when I could not resist to touch them and caress them? Those men had no artistic feeling of any kind, for there was my soul in those shoes. There was everything a man could give, transformed into leather. I looked again and again. I said, it is not true. They did not tell me that. It is impossible that I have nothing when all that is in my mind has been brought into being. Yet they had said it, and I remembered my future. There was little money in my pocket. I had wasted eight days in New York. There were shoemakers in Italy depending on me to give them orders to keep them going. There were people in America awaiting the shoes they had ordered. But if this was what George Miller and his assistants thought, who were so experienced in shoes and styling and designs, what would the others say? How could I go on if I had nothing that would appeal, tempt, attract? A sudden anger swept over me. It was not true that I'd wasted my time in Italy. It was not true that I had nothing. I had something, a wonderful something. I would make people see what I had brought forth was beautiful and wonderful and new. I rushed to the telephone and put through a call to Manuel Gerton, the buyer for Saks Fifth Avenue. I told him what I had been doing in Italy and of the samples I had brought. He had heard of my venture, of course, and he was interested and pleased that I had phoned him. He asked me how long I planned to remain in New York. I could not tell him I had been in New York for eight days. I could not tell him that I could not afford to stay another day longer. I simply said, I'm only passing through. I'm here for today. I'm taking the train this afternoon for Chicago on the way to California. But I would be glad to show you what I've brought with me. Can you come to my hotel immediately or shall I bring them over to you? He hesitated. Look, Salvatore, he said, worried. I'm pretty busy just now, but let me see. There was a pause. I'll tell you what I'll do. It's only a short way from here, so I'll rush right up. Are you there now? Ready? Yes, I said, a trifle grimly. I'm ready. Come right up. It won't take you long to look them over because I brought only a few samples. I intend to start the lines off in California, 
but I should like your opinion, and then perhaps later on we can get together or whatever you want to do. Okay, he said. I'll be right up. He came. I showed him into the display room, the shoes all neatly rearranged in their places. I watched his face as he entered, and all my fears, all my doubts, dropped away. He was overwhelmed. His eyes were brilliant. He picked up the shoes, and some he kissed. He said, Salvatore, this is the work that belongs to you. You have done something new, Salvatore. You have done something no one has ever done. You keep these shoes away from everyone. I want them. I shook my head, feeling my heart and mind light and gay. I can't do that, I said, because I have shouldered some responsibilities in California, and I have a factory organized in Italy, which I must keep working. I can't do now as I used to. I have to keep my people busy. I can keep them busy as you like, he replied. These shoes are marvelous. How in the world did you do it? This is splendid. He paused. What time are you leaving? He asked abruptly. I told him. Forget about it, he said. Don't do it. Listen, I have some work to do on these shoes. Let me work on them. I'll complete all I have to do this afternoon, all the orders, and tomorrow you can leave at any time you want. He sat right down on the floor and prepared to write his orders. I stood and watched him, my blood pressure mounting to such a pitch, thought I should burst. My heart was singing. I watched him touching the shoes, picking them up and putting them down, not knowing which order to write first. He liked every single shoe. He was jealous of them. If I ventured to take a shoe into my hand, he took it away and placed it back in its position. And all the time he scribbled. Lunchtime came. I suggested we have a meal in the room, but he shook his head. Forget about it, he said. A sandwich will do. Just a sandwich and a cup of coffee. So we ate sandwiches and drank coffee while he went on with the orders. It was six o'clock before he had finished. When he departed, I possessed an order worth many thousands of dollars. I was the happiest man in the world. Next day, on the way to California, I changed trains at Chicago. I had a few hours to spare, so I decided to call without appointment on the buyer for Marshall Field. I marched into his office, my bag of samples in my hand, telling him that I had dropped in without notice because I was on my way to California from Italy and only had a few hours in Chicago between trains. I'd just like to show you what I have achieved in Florence, I said, so that you can give me your opinion, irrespective of whether you want to order any or not. He gave me a sharp look. He was irritated, and I felt that he wanted to turn me out but couldn't because, busy as he was, at least I had called in on my way from Florence and Florence was a long way away. So he said reluctantly that he would have a look, and I turned my samples out on his table. His expression changed violently, and he became as enthusiastic as Manuel Garton. He pleaded with me to postpone my departure. I said, how can I change? I have my ticket and my sleeper. Besides, I have engagements to fulfill in California. He looked at me with a long stare, probably thinking, What a devil this fellow is, barging in during my work and then rushing off again. What am I going to do now? Have I to leave my work and continue to be bothered by him? He decided to be bothered because he sat down and scribbled several orders in a hurry. As he handed them to me, he said, Be sure you don't disappoint me with deliveries of this stuff. And now get out of Chicago and don't show your samples to another soul in this city. 
Otherwise, I'm not interested and the orders are canceled. Mr. Gibbs, I said, I'm going west right now. I could not tell him the feeling which possessed me. It was too much. Within 24 hours of receiving the blow from George Miller, I had booked orders with two of the greatest stores in the United States. My shoes were right. I went west in a whirl. For once, I did not look at the scenery. It meant nothing to me. I knew I had succeeded. I knew I had accomplished something I had dreamed of achieving, and no one now could prevent me from developing all that was in my mind. In California, my reception was wonderful. Press, radio, and magazines combined to tell the state about the new Ferragamo creations. Photographs and hundreds were taken and published. I was interviewed and cross-questioned. And, just to make doubly sure that I was not dreaming, I called on all the leading novelty shops shoe shops, and department stores in Hollywood and Los Angeles. The reception was unanimous. Each store insisted that if I wanted to do great business, I should confine the lines to them alone. So I closed my mind to the terrible words of George Miller and turned my attention to the corporation in California. I had imagined that my stay in California would be limited to a few days. In this time, I hope to straighten out the difficulties caused by my long absence, soothe the worried stockholders, and raise additional finance to continue the work I had begun in Florence. Then, I would hurry back to Italy and settle down to the fulfillment of the orders I had taken. I was far too optimistic. The organization I had left behind in California had creaked and crumbled without my controlling hand. Money had trickled away until the available cash was insufficient to pay the running expenses. Many of my associates had lost confidence in me. They were terrified that they were going to lose every cent they had put into the business. The more angry among them accused me of idling my time away on a prolonged holiday in Italy and squandering the company's money without justification. They wanted to have nothing more to do with me. The statewide and national publicity I had received and the orders I had taken weighed like a feather in the balance. Swallowing my temper as best I could, I settled down to explain my setbacks. I painted the future. I described the organization I had established. I showed them my samples and my orders. I urged them to be patient as I was forced to be patient. Wait, I said. These things are not to be improvised. The time will come when you will cash in a thousandfold on the fruits of all the seeds I am sowing. It was an uphill task, frustrating, heartbreaking, humiliating. I had to tackle each stockholder in turn, and as fast as I settled one argument, another arose. As the days and the weeks went by, I sometimes felt that I was fighting a many-headed monster. Sometimes I thought that I would fail. Repeatedly, I heard the cry, abandon the scheme, let us salvage what money we can. Repeatedly, I replied, no, let us raise more finances to improve and strengthen my organization. Then I shall have cash for my work in Italy, and there will be dollars for the store in Hollywood. It will all come back to us with interest. One by one, I gradually won them round, all except one man. He refused to have anything more to do with me and my ideas, and at last I was forced to raise the money to buy his stock for myself. No sooner was this man settled than I took the next train east from Hollywood. I had been in California six weeks. The delivery dates I had promised for the orders I had taken were approaching and nothing had been done. It was time to get down to the real work, the work I had prevented from doing for so long. I returned to Florence to find a business in shambles. Although my shoemakers had been fully paid during my absence, they had played ducks and drakes with my organization. Many had left. The others, fewer than 30 in number now, had done no work or had done so little and done it so badly that it was useless. As soon as I returned there began a series of arguments and yet more arguments until I felt sick. Many of my shoemakers were 50 and 60 years old and had been making shoes all their lives. Now they refused to make the shoes the way I wanted them made. 
We've always made the shoes in our own way, they said. Why do you want to change it? Your method is no good. They pointed to my lasts and said, these are impossible. You can't make shoes on these. My orders called for the manufacture of lines of 36 or 50 pairs of shoes, all identical. It was impossible to produce them. Not two pairs of shoes were alike. One shoemaker would make them his way, the next in his way. Despite all my efforts, despite my every moment of surveillance, despite my repeated and increasingly heated instructions, I could make no headway. The bolder spirits walked out, saying angrily, Nobody has ever made remarks to me like that. I know what I am doing. I have been a shoemaker for so many years. I taught such and such to make shoes, so why would you now try to teach me how to do it? If you like the way I work, all right. If you don't like it, I'll go. They went. My working force dwindled steadily. My customers pestered me for delivery on their orders. Their representatives in Florence called day after day. They did not cancel. They wanted my shoes too much, but I just could not deliver. I could not tolerate the workmanship, and even if I had been willing to lower my standards, the stores in America would never have accepted lines of shoes in which every pair supposed to be identical was different. Shipments were microscopic, and California started to worry me again, demanding shoes, shoes, and still more shoes. Money ran short, wasted by workmen who would not work as I wanted for the wages I was paying. The position became intolerable. The Gordian knot had to be cut, and so I cut it. One day I dismissed the remaining workmen, looked around the empty factory with its litter of lasts and tools and leather, all idle, and went out in search of new men. This time I was determined to have nothing to do with any shoemaker who had learned the craft. I would have no more prejudice in my business. I would have people who knew and believed in my work. I knew of a number of good, clever boys in Florence who were learning to be shoemakers, but whose identical knowledge was incomplete. I knew that they could not make one single pair of shoes between them. Nevertheless, these were the lads I sought out. I established a school for them in Florence and advertised for other boys who wished to learn the trade, offering to pay them while they learned. The desperate plan worked. Within a few days, I had gathered around me the nucleus of a working force in the persons of 30 eager youths. In another week, the first shoes began to trickle off the assembly line, and it was an assembly line. I knew that inexperienced youths could never be taught to make a line of identical shoes, so I taught each boy how to do one job perfectly. When the job was finished, he handed the shoes to the next boy for the next operation. Because they were young and knew little, and because I was paying them well, they stuck to their tasks splendidly. Within a month of starting my school, I had turned out a few complete lines and shipments, minute shipments, but they were a beginning. We're going abroad, the first Italian shoes ever to be exported. There were, of course, slight mistakes in some of the first batches. There was workmanship, which could have been bettered, though the errors were so slight that only I would have noticed them. Nevertheless, the shoes that went from my factory were perfect. The work that was not right, I kept. But, best of all, I knew that the worst hurdle had been surmounted. All that remained was to keep on improving, adding to my labor force, expanding my output, and all would be well. I was working now with redoubled energy. On a second trip to America six months after the first, I opened an additional 30 accounts throughout the States. The months and then the years passed, my shoes began to sell also in London, Paris, Berlin, and Amsterdam, though not in Italy. Every shoe I made went for export. It turned out to be a grave mistake. At last, I controlled 100 workers. Production increased steadily, and my shoes were in constant and widening demand. Stores in Europe and America, which had no representatives in Florence, started sending their buyers to Italy, especially to see my lines. They would order perhaps 5,000 pairs, and because I could still not keep pace with demand and was forced to ration my customers, I would give them perhaps 500 pairs. Yet all was not well. 
In California, my associates were eager for cash returns and at the same time were managing the distribution badly. I rent shoes to Hollywood only to find out later that they had not been sold. I needed a constant supply of capital to develop the business to its full potential, but California wanted only dollars. They sent me urgent cables asking for shoes by the thousands. They urged me to install machines. It was the argument with my brothers all over again, and I refused. I refused again and again. I would not lower my standards or compromise them for anyone in the world. In California, they began to take profits out of the business instead of sending the money back to me in Florence for expansion and the guarantee of future greater profits. The correspondence which traveled back and forth across the world was terrific. I considered their policy to be suicidal and said so. I was selling every pair of shoes I could make and output was rising every day, yet the company's finances grew worse and worse. One day I received a cable announcing their decision to sell the Hollywood shop for a sum which did not represent a fraction of its value. I cabled an urgent hold-on message and rushed over to California. After a hectic series of meetings, I managed to persuade them to hold their hands. I pointed out that I was selling every shoe I could make and that I was daily making more and more. If they would only help instead of constantly hindering, we could expand and expand, and they would be more than adequately, they would be handsomely repaid. It was only a question of time. They demanded that a stockholder be sent to Florence with me to supervise the establishment. I agreed. I was only too happy to have someone to take the administrative load off my shoulders and so allow me to devote more time to the work of making shoes. This man returned to Florence with me, and for several months, he handled the administration. He proved completely incompetent. He had been a machine salesman with no business knowledge, and his trade policy was negative and frustrating. Matters went from bad to worse. My associates sold the shop in Hollywood, after all, for a song. The depression, begun by the Wall Street crash in 1929, deepened month by month, frightening my associates even more. First, sterling was depreciated, and then the dollar, the severest blow of all at my earnings, especially in the absence of any home trade in Italy. Some of my associates came over to Florence thinking that writing was not sufficient to interfere with my work and obstruct me in every way, hammering at the same old arguments. We want quick profits. We want more shoes. Make more shoes. Introduce machinery. Speed it up. Speed it up. Speed it up. As finances became more acute, I was forced into the hands of moneylenders. I created obligations in my own name, in my mother's name, and in my relatives' names. I was charged an exorbitant interest, 20% for three months, the equivalent of 80% per annum, but there was no alternative if I was to keep my business alive. Besides, it was only a temporary measure. I was selling my shoes. My business was expanding. I would pull through soon. Soon, I would pull through. I did not pull through. In July 1933, the users foreclosed. I was bankrupt.